It's that time of week, the time you've been waiting for. It's time for Goat Gab, a weekly podcast about all things in the dairy goat industry. Sit back and enjoy an hour or so with your hosts, Laura Warren Hughes and Cameron Jedlowski, as we talk about ideas and topics that matter to the dairy goat world. Welcome back, Goat Gabbers. We're so glad to have you on another exciting episode of Goat Gab. Um, As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Laura Warren-Hughes. And I'm the other co-host, Cameron Jedlowski. This week, we're uh, joined by uh, a friend, mentor, extraordinary judge, and uh, just an overall really, really, really good person to visit with about goats. It's Julie Mathis. So a little formal introduction about Julie. Uh, Julie's been a licensed judge since 1994, which is the year I was born, and is one of the two, uh, the six 2023 Adgan National Show judges. She's judged a lot of national shows and seen a lot of nice goats. And Julie, I believe you've judged every breed, correct? Almost. I have never judged Toggenbergs, and I haven't judged Nigerians yet, but we're going to remedy that this year. So. <laughs> She's been involved in dairy goats since 1983 and breeds and has bred Toggenbergs under the herd name Dairy Delight, uh, has a very famous Toggenberg herd name, and La Manchas and Sables under the herd name Mint Leaf. Julie also helps manage her son's herd of uh, ML Legacy Nubians. Julie has chaired many ADGA committees, is a lifetime ADGA member, currently sits on the EC, um, but also has a professional life outside of goats. Uh, she is a licensed real estate appraiser, broker, and professional farm manager. I would also say that Julie is a professional trailer uh, uh, puller as well there, and she knows how to cross her chains very well. When you agree, Julie? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So, Julie, like all of us, um, besides your busy professional life, you have a busy farm life. So how are things looking at your beautiful farm? Kidding season wrapping up? and So my kidding season is all wrapped up and my major herd reduction is completed. And it's the biggest one I've ever had since I got back into goats in uh, 2006. And so you know, you kind of build and build and build. And then one day you say, wait a minute, this is too much. And then so you go through all the phases of, well, this is still too much. This is still too much. And uh, I'm finally down to where, um, shocking, but um, I'm milking eight does and it's wonderful. And I do have a few more kids than that. And there's a few too many bucks around here, but I found some really fantastic buyers this year who I was comfortable selling animals to. And when they came, I sent a few more home with them and uh, got it all accomplished. And so really hyper-focused right now on type and uh, zoning in on on what I really want um, in my herd when I walk into my barn. And I am enjoying that, seeing all the things that I love every day and um, just being happy when I look at my does as they come through to be milked, that they're what I really want. So it's great. I think that is a very inspiring way to put it. Put it. I mean, so that's eight milking does with three different breeds, right? Yes. So that means there's only a couple of uh, of the uh, the token breeds are tokens. They're truly tokens. So it's uh, okay. working as intended, I guess. So. <laughs> well, I you know I think that's great. As our friend Kurt says you uh, cut until you cry. And I'm sure that there were some hard decisions made there, but 
glad it's glad it's working. Julie, it's I working. do want to ask you. I want to ask you a question before we dive into the podcast as well here, because it's interesting that you talked about how you started back up into goats, you got big, and then you progressively got smaller. Does that, in your mind, help you get to where you are faster? Because I've found that that having a big size of a herd works pretty well in order to get to your goals, maybe a little faster, but it might require a little more work. I feel like it requires a lot more work and I feel like it depends on the resources, whether you can do that right or not. And so people said to me for so long, I have no idea how you do it. And Kyle and I did it. And I mean, we did it, you know, we worked and did it all ourselves and we made it work. And, um, but I look back at that now and I think, I don't know how I did it either. I mean, we had, 80 goats, you know, at one time. And, um, you know, we freshened all these goats, milked all these goats. I see flashback pictures on Facebook where I would say, we have 16 kids going to new buyers this weekend. And I just blows my mind now. I can't even imagine doing that. So I think you go through phases in your life where it works for you at the time. And we did make a lot of progress and we sold a lot of genetics to people and we bred a lot of nice animals Um, But I'm seeing now just over the past few years where I'm really zoned in on type and what I want that I feel like I can still accomplish that with fewer animals and, you know, maybe even and maybe even the same. So I'm about to find out. (laughs) Well, that's that's awesome. That's really awesome to hear because you've probably got uh, other stuff you want to accomplish as well. And, and um, yeah. And besides just milking goats 24 seven, even though we all love milking goats 24 seven. Right. <laughs> and I would imagine it brings some of the fun back to it too. It really does. And um, it's, it's a lot less stressful and I kind of have myself on a time clock. I only want it to take a certain amount of time, you know, chore time only needs to take a certain amount of time and be able to move on to other things. And so um, that's been really good. And it's really helped me focus in on where I need to cut the numbers. And I really look at every animal. I said this to somebody else. I look at every animal every day and I say, why do I have you? Do I enjoy you? Do I enjoy looking at you? And so I really kind of have these um, moments where I reflect on everything a lot more as opposed to just going through the motions and just doing all the chores every day. I think about everything I'm doing and why am I doing it? Well, I think there's a lot to be learned from that. So maybe that is a great topic for a future podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Kim, yeah. What, what's going on in your barn? Uh, well, we finished kidding season this weekend. Thank God it, it's, it's over. Um, finished with a nice buck doe pair of twins. Uh, no clue who the dad is. And we can't even like tell like, it's not like we're like doing the whole color thing here because we're out of Toggenbergs, but the, it, normally we can kind of like tell who the sire is. We've got two choices, but um, we haven't been able to tell yet. So uh, there will be a DNA kit sent in for the doe. Well, the buck will go to the uh, petting zoo guy that we have because he always wants more. So, um, so that's that's really that's really happened there. Uh, we're working on appraisal prep. We'll have appraisal here in 
on Sunday, which um, that's coming up there. So that's been really focused on that. So we'll have milk test on Saturday, appraisal on Sunday. And we're um, not really a host herd per se, but we're having some other people come as well to just kind of watch and learn and, and kind of just see how it's all done type thing there. So that's pretty exciting to be hosting people, but that means we have to get our yard mowed and people might judge us for that. So um, <laughs> this requires more work on that front there. Um, also went on a two week judging, um, spree, I'll call it there, had the opportunity to judge in Portland around Portland, Maine. And then I was on the West coast around Portland, Oregon. So, um, back to back coast trips. I did that once in my early twenties and now I've done it in my late twenties and I don't think I want to do that in any of my thirties. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, so that's that's that, and I've got a little bit of a judging hiatus before my dad and I go back to the coast. Judging Maryland, which should be fun, judging with my dad and, and see some nice goats out there, which should be good, and um, judging a specialty of a breed, which is always exciting in, in whatever district you're doing it in, so that's that, that'll be fun there. Also working with our uh, local nutritionist on some um, ration problems we've had and, and all sorts of stuff there, so... I think we've got our new feed pretty much secured and where we're going um, and it's going to help us. It means we will probably have to give up delivery, but if I get better results, then um, I will, I will make that sacrifice. Sounds pretty productive. It'll be, it'll be fun to hear how your appraisal goes. Yes, absolutely. Laura, what's, what's happening to your place? Well, um, we are down to our four keeper doe kids. Those are the only kids that we have in the pen. That's the fewest number of kids we've ever well have kept for a long time and all of the little butt kids got to go to one place where they're going to be fence cleaners and loved on by grandkids so that's always a happy ending you know when when you know they're going to be cherished and loved for a while so um so that's fun it just looks so weird to go out there and just see these four little baby goats hanging around you know um our milking machines, we're still having issues with our dang milking machines. So uh, they made the trip to Hamby's this, this week. My husband took them out for me. So Elizabeth and I have been enjoying lots of mom and daughter time hand milking everybody. Which really hasn't been, it really hasn't been that bad. I got back into the groove. I'm not doing too bad. Elizabeth is a very fast milker. So um but it's it's been kind of nice. It's we we got some new hay delivered, and the goats are milking like great on it. So that's been kind of fun to see too. You know, when they come in with these great big full udders, you're like, oh, I have to hand milk that. But then you see the foaming bucket, and it's it's all fun. So that's pretty good. And uh, I guess the last thing is we survived our big Memorial Day show that we had, and a uh, total count for um, animals walking in through all four rings was. 1,317 goats. So um, that was that was really good. We had perfect weather. This t- show ran fairly smoothly, went a little bit late. But um, the big deal was we had 100 Nigerian dry does in one of those rings. Julie, how many dry does did you see when you were in District 8, I do believe, judging? So I would say dry does. I don't have the show report here, but it was around 80 to 85, as I recall. So, and we cut our classes there. Did you, did the judge judge all hundred of those, Laura? 
we they all walked to the ring with the classes got cut i think they cut the classes to 20 which okay. is still you know pretty big but um one the biggest class we had elizabeth was at 40 46 dry yearling nigerian dwarfs that was a lot yeah that that sounds like the yeah. 29 nubian dry yearlings i judged this week and and it was nine o'clock at night and you would ju- I had just judged another 400 goats. And so I was already dead exhausted. I'm like, okay, we're going to power through this to get this done. So, um, but nonetheless, I, uh, I judged like, I think I judged 75 Nigerian dwarf juniors and then 89 Nigerian dwarf seniors, um, last weekend in Oregon. So lots of huge number of Nigerian dwarfs, which is good. And I think we might talk a little bit about that here on our topic. Yeah, I think I think that's a good topic, and especially, well, yeah, it, we're going to get to it because I'm just so excited to have two judges who are judging all over the country and have lots of experience to kind of pick your brains about these questions that some of our listeners have popped through, and um, other people just you know grabbed us on the side and wanted to talk about these things. So, um, do we do we have any ad good news that we need to touch on before we hop into our? Um, topic this week i I just have a comment i guess from an ec perspective i know it doesn't always get through all the way to all of the membership and i think it takes a little bit of time for everyone to kind of be able to see all of the progress but i want to say definitely from everything that i see on a weekly basis in the conversations with our new association manager in the direction that I see things going that I really feel like we've solidly turned the corner and I'm very excited that we're moving in the right direction and we're moving more quickly all the time in the right direction. And it's, it's a huge relief and I, we're going to get there. I don't know what day we're going to get there, but we're going to get there. And um, I think the focus is there and the, the progress is there and the will to get there. And as much as there's distractions kind of all over the place and things still don't always go perfectly, we know that um, there's huge progress in the right direction. And I think it's just wonderful for ADGA. Thank you, Julie, for the update on the office. Uh, and, and I will agree that service appears to be getting a lot better. So that's really exciting for the association. Kind of diving into our topic here and thinking about picking the brain of a judge and talking a little bit about what exhibitors might be too afraid to ask most ADGA judges. And Laura, you really had the inspiration for this topic, wouldn't you say? Well, yeah. Um, You know, again, I think all of us who have been in dairy goats for a while know that there's lots of new people who have gotten into dairy goats. And um, I had the really cool experience of having a brand new exhibitor who's had goats for two weeks came to the large show that we had a couple of weeks ago And the questions that they were asking made me realize, oh my gosh, there's so much that you take for granted that people should just know when they come to a show for the first time and they don't. And so that was kind of the inspiration for what kind of things do people want to know? And maybe they're afraid to ask judges or they're afraid to ask other exhibitors because they don't want to feel silly or feel like, you know, well, everybody knows that. Well, they may not know it. So that's kind of the inspiration behind this. So, um, I, in organizing our thoughts, Guys, I thought it would be easy if we kind of split things up into some different topics. And um, the first one 
a lot of questions about how to prep your goats for a show. And some of the questions that we have on here are questions that our listeners ask through our Facebook site. So um, let's just dive into that on there. And, and the first one is about clipping your animals. Um, and I know something in, in uh, the upper Midwest or in the upper Northwest and also on the East coast, I've seen some fuzzy shows that they've advertised that they have where they tell you not to clip your goats. Um, how does that affect you guys as judges? Does it really make a difference if a kid is clipped or if, or if a maturdo is clipped? I would actually much prefer if it's a weather driven situation, if there's any question about it being too cold to clip the animal um, temperatures at night, or even sometimes during the day, just judge that red gut. It was quite cool during the day. Um, I would much rather see the animals with a lot more hair. So either some kind of dairy clip or some animals, if they have a shorter hair coat, it's fine not to clip them at all. I really felt like they were easier to evaluate if they were warm and comfortable as opposed to the animals that had been clipped that were shivering or not walking well or just uncomfortable during the show. And at the show that I recently judged in California where it was cooler, I had multiple animals who won their breed and kids in particular who hadn't been clipped and they did place over kids who were clipped and not necessarily because they were warmer or more comfortable, but it was definitely easier to evaluate them. And I don't feel like it hurt them at all in the show. Yeah, I, I, I really agree with you. And, I, and Julie, I remember a show you and I were at actually um, a couple of years ago, right? First show right after the pan, the year after the pandemic and everybody was really itching to show their goats and, it was really freaking cold. Um, and I was, my, I, my dad and I were just thinking about what, what goats to clip. And I was just like, well, I mean, take, I think you can, t- you can strategically clip if that makes sense um, in order to accentuate certain parts there. But as a judge, I would rather be, you be tasteful about that. And I think as a judge as well as if you're going to do that, you better know how to tastefully clip or ask someone who can do that. So Julie, you mentioned a dairy clip Um, for our listeners. Do you want to explain that a little bit more? Cause I think that's probably what Cameron's kind of alluding to is what's known as a dairy clip. Yeah. So on a milker, I guess I would refer to it as a dairy clip more on a milker than on a kid, but so clipping the udder and then some of the long hair, maybe around the legs that would block the view of the udder. I would clip out the ears, um, the beard, Uh, the edges of the tail, kind of square off the brush on the tail, kind of clean up the tail area. And so all those kinds of things that you would do maybe normally before a doe freshens, um, then you would also do those same kind of clipping, those same areas for the show. And then you could also shorten up some other hair or thin it out, kind of depending on what clipper blades you have. There's some clipper blades that are made specifically for that type of grooming. And so I use those a lot um, early in the year to either thin out hair or just strategically clip areas. Um, Sometimes I'll clip kind of between the front legs, you know, that brisket area that has some hair on it there, make it a little bit easier to see kind of a cleaner area up there. But those are all areas that are, you're removing that hair 
a lot of that's hair that if you're milking this dough, you would have kind of had removed anyway um, to make a more sanitary milking situation. And so you're not really making the animal uncomfortable by removing a lot of excess hair, but you are making her attractive in the show ring and um, making her look presentable and kind of a clean appearance. And then also just making it easier for the judge to evaluate, particularly mammary system and the animal when viewed from the rear um, would be a lot easier with the hair removed in those areas. And so that's kind of how I do it. So Julie, do you think that do, do you, can a judge see through hair? I think that's the, that's a question that I hear a lot and I, I think we can, but sometimes that's hard. Don't you agree? You can see through a certain amount of hair. I mean, there are animals and I even saw a picture today on social media where an animal had a really extreme amount of hair that I'd wanted to show. And you kind of think in your mind a little bit, you know, what's under that. And so you can do some feeling and evaluating and you're going to watch the animal walk and, you know, but I'm sure there are certain traits that are somewhat hidden under some, you know, significant amounts of hair. And so I think there is a line there somewhere where it's more difficult to evaluate the animal with a lot of hair, but I would say just a normal shorter hair coat on an animal that isn't really shaggy or, you know, just a, a shorter natural hair coat is very easy to evaluate an animal. And so most animals, I think, again, I think it would be fine. There would be some that would have a lot of hair and you might have to do more kind of feeling and touching to kind of figure out what's under there. I was talking with some friends of mine the other day that show boar goats and they talked about the fact that, you know, the difference in fitting of boar goats versus dairy goats is just so tremendous. They use so many different types of hair products and you really don't see judges with boar goats putting their hands on them like you do with dairy goats. Um, is there any time that people should consider using like a hair finisher on a dairy goat animal? I mean, we really don't sculpt them when we clip them or anything like that. I think the only time that I ever see that or use that where I think it's really warranted maybe is, you know, sometimes animals coming out of, out of winter don't have the most beautiful hair coat, you know, and so that first clipping of the year, you know, maybe it's not even or maybe it doesn't look quite as healthy or something like that. So maybe something to condition it or just kind of help the appearance a little bit. I don't like a lot of products and I definitely don't like it when an animal is sticky or, you know, you have something that gets on your hands when you touch the animal and then you're having to wash your hands repeatedly. And um, so maybe just something more from a health perspective as opposed to really um, a lot of products as finishers. So that would kind of be my preference. So let's maybe talk about a little bit on show prep here and kind of thinking about strategically there. We have some judges in the association that, you know, don't mind how much milk a goat may have in the udder. There's some that, you know, say even eight hours is too much. Um, I, I, I guess, do you have a baseline of how much you prefer of a goat as a judge there? Is there like a rule of thumb? I don't think there's really a rule of thumb on a number of hours, but I think I always want the animal to be comfortable I think the expectation kind of in general 
is a full mammary system. I mean, I like to see a full mammary system. I like to see what the animal can do. And I think everybody realizes that it's usually going to be more than 12 hours. And so she's going to be fuller than she is at a normal milking time. Um, But I don't like the extreme uttering. I don't like animals being uncomfortable. So, and it's a different for everybody. You know, some people are hauling to a show in the morning. And so, you know, the goat doesn't make milk while you're hauling it or, you know, they don't like to be away from home. And so just picking a number of hours and saying, oh, it's 12 hours or it's 14 hours or 16 hours. I think it's very difficult. It's very um, situation based, you know, based on that animal and, and where she looks good. But I think, you know, this is a competition. People go through a lot of effort to get their animals ready and present them to the judge and you know, there's, there's all this preparation in advance, or at least I think there a lot of, in a lot of cases there is, you know, and so I think there should be some kind of effort to get the animal to whatever her best advantage is. Where does she look good? Um, you know, what's the best presentation of that animal? And so I think that to me makes the most sense in terms of what I think an exhibitor should do is really look at your animal and say, when does she look her best? How full is she? When does she walk well? When is she comfortable? Um, And so what's the best situation for this individual animal to be at her best that day? And wouldn't you say that's part of the whole art of being a good um, showman, of being a good handler of animals, is that it's not something that somebody can just write down in a book you really have to know your animal. You have to know how to make them look their own best. And, and uh, that's, that's part of what makes shows exciting. I think is it's not just the genetics of the animal. It's not just the way that you feed them at home. It's really knowing how to uh, get that animal just fitted and filled to its very best advantage, knowing the difference between, um, an animal that is so full and an animal that's so full that they're posty and they can't stand well. And, um, you know, their whole top line falls apart because they're carrying so much milk that that is, I think it's truly an art. Oh, it is. And I think that's something that takes time to learn. Um, it's a process and I think there's some trial and error involved in that. And I think, um, exhibitors who really kind of bring their a game, you know, in that area and are making sure that every animal is presented their best advantage. I mean, it's a huge advantage in the show ring. Um, I think, you know, that's kind of the reason why we're there. I think as a judge, it's very exciting for me always to see the effort that an exhibitor has put into bringing that animal there to present to me. I'm actually kind of honored by that when I watch a long line of exhibitors walk into a show ring with animals that they've put all this effort and time into clipping and cleaning and uttering correctly. And they're dressed in white, you know, and everybody's brought their a game. I mean, that's, that's the best there is in terms of judging a goat show. And so I always think that's really exciting as a judge to see all of that, you know, kind of the pageantry of a goat show. And so I really enjoy that. And um, I appreciate that exhibitors are willing to go through all that and put all that effort in, you know, and that's kind of what it's all about, I guess, you know, so that's judging at its best when, you know, when that's kind of how the show unfolds. 
you know, we talk about as judges utter texture a lot, and obviously that's driven by how much milk, but, you know, we can go to the scorecard, but do you have any, I guess, what's your normal average everyday thing that you could feel and that would, you would say, hey, that's the desired texture we're looking for? Right. And so I would say, you know, if you kind of put your hands on the udder on the front and on the back, and you'll see me do that if I'm judging, and I'm not even sometimes as much checking the attachment, you know, as I am just kind of t- checking, you know, does the, how much does the udder move? How much texture does it have? You know, what does it feel like? And I get a really quick impression when I do that, but you want to have some pliability there. And so, you know, you want to be able to make some nice, soft indention indentation, sorry, into the udder, you know, with your hands very gently, but you can definitely feel you know, is this comfortable for the animal? Does it feel like there's suppliability and a little bit of room left there, you know, or does it feel hard or does it feel cold or does it feel warm? And so, you know, what that really feels like. And um, so just that kind of initial touch, you want to be able to feel, you know, softness and warmth and pliability and for the, and you can tell, is this animal uncomfortable or, you know, is she okay? And so you can make a pretty quick analysis of that. And I also feel like looking at the teats before you even touch an otter, you can usually look at the teats and tell whether it's really tight and uncomfortable or whether it's still soft and pliable. So as judges, since, again, picking both of your brains, Uh, We all know that most shows in their show rules say that animals will be discriminated against if they're over uttered. Um, And I think once in a while you'll see it shows where a judge will call out an exhibitor and and ask them to remove milk. You don't see that happen that often, but yet I have also seen lots of goats that are over uttered. Is it, is it kind of an unwritten rule that for the most part you just place them accordingly? You don't ask them to milk out? And and why don't you hear more about animals being overuttered? Well, I, I can go first here on this. I, I want to talk about – I vividly remember last year at the national show. I was there. I was in a class. And in both classes, I was showing my wife's goats. And I had known that I would probably put a little too much milk in them. Um, but I, and we might talk about this a little later on, maybe this is more of a Laura thing to talk about here. Um, but, um, knowing that like you judges do talk about texture. And I mean, last weekend, I remember vividly talking about utter texture, not just, you know, in, in the regular class, but talking about it in my best in show lineup as well there. And utter texture specifically is, is called out on the scorecard there. So it may not be say, Hey, you need to go milk out your goat or take some milk out, but it may be discriminated against in the reasons or in the mindset of the judge as well there. Um, so that's, that's one thing to consider as well there. And I think about, Hey, we're not going to maybe take time at a local show to kind of milk out your goat because one, it is that art and two time at a local show. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later on might be at a premium there. I think you kind of have an issue too of allowing it's the exhibitor's job to manage their animal. It's not my job as the judge to manage their animal. So I can make suggestions. I can include it in my reasons. I can include it in my placings. But particularly where they're showing in multiple rings, something that I ask them to do in my ring, where, you know, if I say you need to release this animal, 
And then they go over to Cameron's ring and Cameron says, well, she'd place higher today if she had a fuller mammary system, you know? And so it's kind of one of those <laughs> where I feel like we need to, it's their animal. They need to manage the animal and it's my job to place it accordingly. But I do feel like there's a line of animal welfare. I, I have seen animals at shows that are so full and so uncomfortable. It's very hard not to say something, you know, or make some kind of suggestion. And the exhibitor doesn't have to take the suggestion. But um, I do think there's a line there that, you know, you have to watch if people are crossing. And there's a point where you definitely need to say something. And um, just for animal welfare purposes, it's... Um, just difficult sometimes uh, to determine, you know, how much input you should have into what they actually decide to do. I think that makes all kinds of sense. Um, you know, something I learned, and this is probably old news to you guys. I just learned this this weekend. And it was one of those, well, duh mo moments, I think for me, but um, I had a doe that was very definitely to me over uttered. I mean, I, I definitely had too much milk in her and it was the, you know, the second show of the season, she's really come into good milk. And um, so I took her out, we uh, took milk out of her and took too much milk out. My daughter said, well, we've got probably two hours, two or three hours before she's going to show. So I took enough milk out that, you know, when she utters up more, uh, she won't be too full then. And um, a wise dairy goat friend of mine says, well, but it doesn't work that way. Once they utter up and that udder gets tight, hormonally that tells the animal to stop making milk. So when you take milk out, they're really not going to make more milk to fill up the udder. Is that something that everybody knew and I just didn't know it? Um, y yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> But at the same time, I, sometimes they do put milk back in their udder, I feel like. And, it, you know, I think Julius had a good point on, like, you take milk out of the udder on one side because she's hard and, and Julius ring, but then she's, you know, got a nice texture, but the rear udder drops. Um, and that, that happens all the time. And I think on the relieving, it depends on how much you take, whether they put it back. And so I think, you know, some people are like, well, I take 10 squirts or 20 squirts or, you know, something that's not real significant. I think they'll put that back and that gives them, you know, just a little bit of room there to be a little bit more comfortable or, you know, but I think when you take a really significant amount, you say, well, they'll fill back up in two hours. I do think you're right where a lot of times that's not going to happen. And so it might kind of be over for them. <laughs> so. Right. Well, and that's, we, we learned, <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that was just kind of interesting. And then um, kind of a follow-up question on that, this doe, once we got the milk out of her, then she's like, of course, letting down her milk and is just leaking like crazy. Talk to me about judges with goats that are leaking in the ring. How does that, how does that impact what you're seeing? Um, you know, I think we all probably can agree from a biosecurity standpoint, it's not a great thing to have happen. Yes, but it, and it's not, and I, I agree with you on that. But I will tell you that a lot of show committees provide, you know, hand sanitizer or wipes or 
dying in water or, you know, some type of chlorhexidine water or something like that there in order for judges to wash their hands. So that that is the thing there. However, I have a little bit more empathy because, um, you know, it, ha- it happens to me. It happens to my goats at times as well there. Um, so I, you know, I understand it does happen. Do I want to see it? No. Is it probably a sign of other other problems? Yes. Um, but that's it, it does happen. And I think you see that a lot if they're showing in two or three rings and they're, you know, they get their udder handled a few times or someone relieves them and then the judge touches, the, you know, and they're trying to let milk down. And sometimes once that starts, it just kind of progressively goes downhill and there's really no, not a lot you can do to stop it. And so it's just unfortunate sometimes the way that that unfolds and it's not always something that's easy for the exhibitor to control you know, once it starts and once you take out a certain amount of milk, then it's kind of like we talked about earlier, you know, your dough doesn't look her best anymore. And so it's one of those risks, I think, of showing in the multiple ring shows and really trying to accomplish keeping a dough uttered correctly or, you know, at optimum fullness for a certain amount of time. It is a difficult thing to do. So it just doesn't always work out the way you want to. So kind of along that line, let's talk a little bit about utter clipping. And I think anybody who's on social media or has looked at pictures of goats knows that there's conservative utter clipping. And then there's uh, creative, maybe that's a good word for it, utter clipping. What do, do judges have a preference? Does it matter? Uh, is it more about the skill of the person clipping? You can do it creative if you know what you're doing. Um I think we all can agree that an utter clip job does not hide a poor attachment, correct? Correct. Some people think it does. Right. Yeah, I don't think most judges are fooled by the clipping. I enjoy, kind of like I said earlier, I do enjoy when people put the effort in. So, the you know, the razoring and the, the clean lines and you know, making it really presentable and beautiful, but there's a difference between clipping something that's there and showing off a beautiful attachment, a lot of arch and a long foretter, the milk veins. There's a difference between that and then the clipping that is trying to make something appear that really doesn't exist. That doesn't really fool anyone, but I, I mean, I enjoy the, the, high effort, you know, clip jobs that people do and the effort that they put into it and the skill that they have to do that when it's on, I guess, you know, a really fancy mammary system, a really fancy animal. Um, I don't know that it changes the placing, but it's part of the pageantry, I guess. Yeah, you're kind of right there. And I think maybe in my younger judging days, I would have maybe got maybe sucked into more of a Oh man, that's a really well clipped and really well prepared utter. You know what I'm saying? Like, like to almost get lost in kind of the, the mystique of the utter clip because I do really appreciate an utter clip and it is an art there. Um, however, as I've gotten older and have more battle scars, um, I, I've really kind of you know I, I really I appreciate it. However, there are ways around it as well there. So um, you know I, I think if you know younger judges if they're listening to this and, and kind of know that and be like, hey, there are people that are very creative at clipping. So uh, understand that, know that, and, and really say, hey, and really 
study not only just that arch, but those attachments as well there. Makes sense. We did have some of our listeners ask a couple of questions about show prep. And I think this one is a really great one. Um, The question was asked if an animal is not in their best condition, like if they didn't make milk at the show. And, and I think all of us that show have had those, those times when we've, we've gotten up in the morning and we look at them and we're like, Oh my goodness, what were you doing all night? Because it wasn't making milk, you know? Um, Would a judge prefer that that animal is scratched or would they still like the animal to be presented in the show ring? I don't really have a preference as a judge. I always feel like I will judge whatever animals brought to me that people want to have evaluated. And so I really think that's more of what the exhibitor's expectation and preference is. And so from the exhibitor's standpoint, if they are going to be personally destroyed if this goat who always wins doesn't do well that day you know I think it's a a little bit more about what they really expect and um, prefer for their animal and so if they would still like that animal to be evaluated you know with an udder that isn't full I think it depends a little bit too on the animal and the animal's traits some udders Uh, look good half full empty all the way full and they would place similarly you know regardless and other mammary systems require that milk to be full up into the rear udder you know for the udder to look good or just you know it's not attractive when it's partially filled and so that dough might not place as well and so I think not every animal is created equal in terms of what they look like half full of milk or, you know, not full of milk or fully uttered. And so I think there's a lot that goes into that that's really specific to the animal and maybe what the exhibitor's expectations are, really as opposed to what I want as a judge, because I will judge whatever, you know, whatever is brought to me, I'm happy to judge it. And um, so I think it's more what the exhibitor really uh, prefers or, is really going for in terms of bringing that animal in that day. Yeah, I think um, I, it's totally exhibitor's preference there on that. You know, you are going to hear comments about, well, let's just go to make more milk or X, Y, Z there. I think one thing as well to be conscious of is if you're in a larger class. So if you're a Nigerian dwarf two-year-old, for example, didn't make milk and there's 36 others in the class, there's a long there's a likelihood that you just maybe for lack of better terms, wasting your time out there because you may be cut in some of those situations there um, because your goat didn't make milk and, and you know that there. As a judge, I'm always going to say show your goats because I'm pro-goat show and I firmly believe that's great. Um, however, I will also tell you that um, you spend a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of energy into your goats and you should have the right to do whatever you want with it. Sounds like a good answer to me. Um, one other one. To what extent can a good show person or a fitting job affect a placing? We kind of touched on that with a fitting job earlier, but what about the skill of the showman? Um, does, does that make a big difference in a placing? I don't feel like it makes a big difference in a placing positively. I mean, again, I enjoy the pageantry of watching people who are skilled and I, it doesn't hurt anything in terms of making sure that the animal is 
shown to the best advantage. That's why we have showmanship classes. And that's why it's, you know, a certain number of points on the scorecard. You know, it's a lot of points on the showmanship scorecard showing the animal to the best advantage. So, I mean, I think there's that. But I think the opposite is really more the issue to me when the animal is not presented well, how much does it hurt the placing as opposed to how much does it help the placing? Because sometimes it's more of a situation where it's hard to evaluate the animal if they're not walking with their head up or you never see them set up correctly or the way they're being set makes their, you know, structural traits, you know, not shown to their best advantage or, you know, whatever the case might be. Um, I think it could negatively affect a placing maybe more than positively affect a placing. I want to give this for example here. So I Nigerian dwarf two-year-old class last weekend, there were 39 entries in the class or something like that. This is a, a ridiculous amount. There was a doe there that caught my eye, you know, side profile looked really good. Um, and, but she didn't walk. I mean, she, the exhibitor repeatedly kind of stepped outside of the circle ring, you know, didn't really want to walk the animal. The animal didn't really want to walk or be there. And this goat was really, really nice. Um, however, I ended up excusing her from the class because again, kind of that showmanship there is, and when we judge animals a lot on the move as well. So being able to move your animals is really, really important to me. And why would I you know, give accolades or, you know, not because I couldn't, fully evaluate this animal and move it on to the top 10 for that specific one because it did not present itself to me at all while on the move. So I could not in good consciousness, you know, judge that animal to the best of my ability and evaluate it properly because it was not moving there. So we talk about showmanship. That's really important. In the other ring, the other judge, the goat decided to move and she was third place out of 39, which, you know, probably looking at her inside profile probably should have been. However, because she did not want to move in the ring and during my ring at that time, she ended up getting cut. So again, the show person can matter um, as long as it's been properly, um, you know, walked and, and properly moving. I think you'll see judges sometimes to really try to help the exhibitor. The judge recognizes that the animal is better than maybe what the presentation is kind of bringing through, you know, and they either want the audience to see that, you know, I have this goat up here and it, you know, it belongs up here, but I'm trying to help get these legs in the right place or I'm trying to get the exhibitor to hold the head up or kind of whatever it takes to make the animal at least look um, kind of in a natural stance, you know, so that it, it looks like it belongs where they've placed it, I guess, you know, and so sometimes when the exhibitor can't present the animal correctly, um, you'll see judges try to kind of help out the situation a little bit. So I think it just kind of goes back to that. They've evaluated it. You know, they've realized that, hey, if this animal were walking or holding its head up or whatever, you know, she's actually very correct and she's actually level or, you know, walks uphill or whatever the situation is. And so um, I think most judges try to do the best they can really in terms of when an animal's being difficult trying to still evaluate the animal or when an exhibitor is such a good showman, you know, that they're hiding faults. Sometimes you'll hear the judge pointed out, you know, I still saw this or that fault, you know, even though the, the showman is doing such a great job and try to really equalize um, the evaluation of the animals in the class as much as possible and take the, the handler out of the equation. So I think 
by and large, I see judges really try to to equalize that and really evaluate the animal. It uh, does always feel good when you're in a, when you're the exhibitor and a judge does point out that um, yeah I noticed that that doe is um, winging out a little bit at her point of elbow but the exhibitor does such a great job of mitigating that you're kind of like ha 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 yeah <laughs> yeah you get your little showmanship accolade in there so that's good exactly exactly yeah that's fun so <clears throat> in thinking about judges as you're judging a show um you know we all know that the scorecard changed to take out stature in its most recent revision um i think there's still some question though about overall size and how judges look at that and one of the questions that our listeners said if two confirmationally correct animals are presented to you that are very similar would you choose the proportionately larger one who is a taller doe over a smaller animal so to me it's not usually about being taller but there's other proportions that are kind of size related and you'll hear me say it a lot in reasons where i talk about longer deeper and wider so there's just kind of more goat there you know overall and so maybe or maybe not you know the bigger goat is taller sometimes it is but usually what goes along with that is more length of body more width of body, more depth of body. And then if it's proportional in terms of productivity where the body is balanced with the mammary system, you might have, you know, more capacity and more, the animal just kind of has more opportunity to carry a larger mammary system because she has a larger, wider, deeper frame, all of those things. And so I think it's easy to get a little bit hung up on the whole tall thing when there's all these other proportions that are involved. And so I don't, I, usually to me, they're not even really very similar. Honestly, I think there's a lot of other traits that go into that and other areas of the scorecard. And so I'm not saying that it's not possible and I'm not saying I would always pick the bigger animal, but some, I don't think that it always, always boils down to just, size or tallness so i'm interested in cameron's uh, well it's interesting because i this, this was the first time i had kind of reviewed the scorecard in a while before i judged the show and i just wanted to make sure i was kind of using my correct terminology and all sorts of stuff because i got my reasons that i like to give but i also want to brush up on that and i really tried to focus on kind of that new category of breaking out back and rump and talking a little bit about that specifically there. When you talk about bigger, I mean, yeah, you can have a longer loin. You can be longer across the back, just the whole chine and loin situation there. You can be longer in the rump from hips to pins as well. Again, that might be deemed as bigger as well. You can be bigger as in wider from thorough to thorough. You can be wider across the back as well because you are bigger. So just because you are bigger doesn't mean that you're not picking up those points that are talking about those things that our scorecard talks about. Um, you know, Julie, you hit the head nail on the head with, with depth of body there. You're wider into the chest floor as well there in our body capacity category. So just because a goat is, quote, bigger, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that it, it, the, we're evaluating that tallness there always. They could be bigger in terms of their rump, their back, their their chest floor there. Uh, they're, they're, they can be bigger in their 
I like to call it thoracic capacity, which isn't on the scorecard, but it's, you know, how, how much spring to the rear barrel does she have there? That could be deemed as bigger, bigger, or, you know, having a size bias is always, you know, thrown out there. But, but really when we dig into some of the reasons that judges can give, not everybody talks like that, but can give, you can understand why necessarily someone may think that there could be a bias. Well, and I also think about when I look at my own herd, I have a, I have a doe who's a two-year-old who is the tallest and longest doe that I have out there. But when you look at her from the front, she's also the narrowest from the front and she's narrow in the back and she doesn't have a great spring of ribs. So I think, I think that we have to trust too, that when our judges are looking at animals, they're looking at that whole package and looking at the proportions of the animals, not just not just that height or not just that length of body, but, but how does that all fit together to give you a congruent, correct, confirmationally sound animal? And one thing we, we hear judges say too, is is, the goat is just more proportional today saying, Hey, she might not be the biggest, but you know, she's not this tall, gawky, rangy looking thing that, you know, is looks, looks kind of rough, but she's taller and bigger. You know, the goat can be smaller, but she can be more proportional, which means that oftentimes she can be more correct, but that's in some other areas. Yeah. It's very much a balancing act always of figuring out, okay, what, what's right in this situation? You know, you get so many different types and styles of animals in a ring together and then trying to pull that all together into, um, you know, pick the best animal, which one's the best and why, and making that decision quickly and all of that. And um, so I think all the things that you talked about there, Cameron, are very similar to the way that I view that. And you don't always get the perfect package, you know, and so there's always a lot of differences to talk about. There's always, you know, different proportions and just um, different types and styles. And so sorting through all that, being able to explain it is uh, kind of an interesting process as you develop as, as a judge, I feel like. So a a quick question along that line, and I know the answer on this one too, but I think a misconception is, you know, when people look at that scorecard and they see there's so many points allotted to a back and, and there's, you know, 13 points allotted to a medial suspensory ligament or all of these different point things, judges don't sit there and add up in their heads as they're looking at a class oh, this animal is the top of the class because she's got 95 points and this one has 93, so she's going to be second. You never do that. No, you never do that as a judge. And so it's more along the lines of just kind of figuring out how much weight to put on different categories and um, priorities, prioritizing what the most important uh, traits are. And so um, I think the points... um, I, I have n- I've seen judges before kind of doing a thing with their fingers, like they're adding up the points, and I always kind of wonder if they really are. But um, that's not <laughs> what we're doing. So I, I don't I, – I've never counted points, but oftentimes I'll think, like in an utter placing, for example, that's where I make it a little more granular into the scorecard because there's only 35 points, but there's only so much you can talk about as well there. So 
when I was thinking about that as I was doing a best utter class last week, and I was just like, well, and I mean, you start to think about, okay, this goat might have a better rear utter, this goat might have, you know, a better fore utter, and it's you're not necessarily counting points, but you're starting to think, okay, who wins more categories? Does that make sense? Yeah, very much so. So, and that's in that in, in in my mind, that generally doesn't happen though until you've already placed the class. Like you go and you pick your goat, and then you start talking. Then you start thinking through the goat things that you want to talk about there. Well, and I think that kind of leads into another question. People wonder how hard is it for judges to judge those AOP classes where you've got, you know, you might have a Guernsey who's just a tiny bit taller than your um, um, Toggenberg or, or your Nigerian. I mean, you know, cause they're on the small side and you may have a Sonnen in there that is about the size of a small Shetland pony. So, you know, how, how hard is it for judges to do that? I always actually think that AOP is quite easy to judge, again, because you have all these different kind of types and styles of animals, but you usually have a lot of big differences between the animals. So there's usually significant differences in the mammary systems, in the general appearance, mostly because different breeds kind of have different traits where they have strengths and weaknesses. And so there's always a lot to talk about. There's usually a lot of differences between the animals. And so I usually feel like those are fairly easy to judge. And it's really a matter of finding the best animal and then finding the next best animal. And then what are the differences between those two? And usually there's quite a few differences. And so I find it to be quite easy. And so really just focusing on, as I go down the line, who's the best animal in this class? Who's the next best animal in this class? you know, kind of as opposed to getting down into the weeds and, and worrying about, well, which one's taller, you know, who has more stature or, you know, we're not talking about that anymore, but, you know, those kinds of things, um, more looking holistically at the goat for the breed that she is. Yeah. It's kind of interesting to judge an AOP because you're, you're looking, again, you're kind of bringing that into context to judge and it's kind of like being proportional. Like you want to take that into context there of the breed where, okay, you're never, you, you shouldn't, generally, you shouldn't find a golden Guernsey that is as tall as the Sonnen. Generally, you shouldn't, but, you know, it, it, it may happen. But, but again, bringing those things into context there. But the scorecard has a lot of other things to talk about besides just size and scale. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of things to talk about on that scorecard. Um, that's not just breed specific. Right. I agree. So I think that's a pretty straightforward, actually easy, easy thing to, to deal with as a judge. Yeah. So something that may not be quite so easy to deal with. How hard is it to objectively judge a class in which you personally know that exhibitor or, you know, the animals and is that, is that difficult? I don't really find it to be difficult. I mean, I've had to do it so many times. And so for such a long time in my judging career, and I've always actually prided myself on being ethical, being able to show off my skills as a judge in terms of actually being able to evaluate animals and give reasons that are accurate and really wanting to 
impress exhibitors and spectators with my skills and abilities. And I feel it really takes away from that if you can't be objective. And so I think that's one of the reasons why um, that I've been able to judge as many national shows as I have. Um, and I get a lot of compliments, I feel like, you know, about objectivity, you judge the goats today, you know, those kinds of comments where I feel like exhibitors really see that. And so I feel like if you're able to do that, um, or once you're able to do that and you're comfortable with that and people respect that, I think that's a really good place to be kind of in your, in your judging career. Um, and so I don't really find it to be difficult. I really enjoy the, I guess, having exhibitors appreciate the skills and ability of a judge and really want to have your opinion and respect your opinion as opposed to just wanting you uh, to place them you know, in a certain place. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense to me. I think Julie, that, that that's one thing that I really love about the dairy goat industry. Um, I spent a very short amount of time showing dogs and thought, Hey, this is kind of fun. And it's pretty similar to you know, showing a dog and showing a goat. There's not, there's, quite a bit of similarities, I, especially because I was showing great big dogs. So, you know, you kind of set them up like you do a goat and so forth. But the thing I found incredibly disappointing was that judges don't give you reasons. They just point you and you're replacing and you're done. And they don't even like to talk to you after the class when you go up to the judge and thank them for judging and ask them to give you some critique on your dog and, and they don't have one. And I feel like that's a thing that really makes dairy goat shows honest is because if you were being if you were being influenced by somebody in the crowd that would show in your reasons because you couldn't justify why you made that placing oh absolutely and i think you know having an audience watching you or even being at a national show and having people around the world watch you you know those kinds of things um there's a lot of pressure involved in that and so you know you want to do the, the best job possible um, I don't think that anybody as a judge is really like fooling exhibitors or, you know what I mean? Really like people, people can look at those animals and even if they're not trained at evaluating animals or trained as judges, they can look out there and see whether it looks right to them or not. Most people can pick out, most people can pick a winner, you know, so they know whether it makes sense. And so I really feel like that no one's fooling anybody here. Yeah, no, you know, goat breeders are judges. Judges are goat breeders. Breeders are judges for the most part there. You know, most of us, if not, you know, 90% of us are on some type of social media. Like we see these goats and we see what happens. We're not, you know, barn blind there. And yes, we do use social media judiciously, um, especially when we do go judge, you know, a certain show in a certain area of the country there. But at the same time, it's important to just understand and look at the goat as compared to, um, you know, who's holding the collar. Is it, you know, is, can a judge be unbiased that like 
The answer is no, and this is my opinion why here, is no one can truly be ever unbiased when it comes to anything in life there. Um, they can be unbiased in judging the goat. They can't be, you know, unbiased towards the person because, you know, they might have some type of relationship with them or something like that. But but they can be unbiased when they show the or uh, who uh, the goat. So that's just my two cents on that. You can never be unbiased on anything. However, um, you can look at the goat instead of the person. And you can be fair in how you do it. Yeah. So, okay, I think those are our hard questions. Let's go with maybe some easier ones for you. From a judge's perspective, and I'm going to start with you, Cameron, on this because we've talked about this a little bit. Do judges like to have meal breaks? No. If you have a lunch break, I don't want to judge your go, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Julie? What do you think? I do not like breaks. I think it really breaks up the day and it's hard to get everyone back in the mode again of being ready for the next class, being present, paying attention, all of those things. I think the second part of the day after the break is much more difficult than everything that came before it. I think that is very um, typical for what I'm hearing from most judges, but I also know that there are some shows who are just like determined to have that, that lunch break in there because I think they think the judges want to have a good break. So probably talk to your judges before you make those decisions, right? Yeah. No lunch breaks. What other things do you as judges feel like shows should, should know or should consider or think about? And Julie, I know this is probably a great time to talk about multi-ring shows. Right. Well, definitely with multi-ring shows and you can't always know this, but it becomes very apparent once you're there and the show is happening. If you have a show where ring two follows ring one and the second judge is always waiting for the first judge, you definitely want your more efficient, faster judge to be in the first ring so that the second ring, you know, isn't waiting all day or just having delays. I think that can get really out of proportion after a while. And, you know, sometimes you don't always know, which judge that is, but I can tell you um, if you need a fast one, I'm, I'm one of them. So I was the slow judge this weekend, which was weird. And I, I generally am not the slow judge that there was the other judge. So I was just speeding through it, I guess. I heard about this. I heard, <laughs> Oh, he's not done yet. He's still. <laughs> I only think the other judge had to wait like, maybe 25 minutes it's because there was 29 niger or nubian dry yearlings so on that note from a judge's standpoint is there what what do you prefer would you prefer to get like the biggest breed out of the way first thing in the morning and get that done so you can move on to the others Yes, because they lose steam after the first after the first breed they get talking or gabbing or all sorts of stuff I agree. And, and the, a large breed usually involves a lot of exhibitors also. So that's a lot of people that are involved in that situation. And so the more people you can kind of get past their showing experience and kind of over the hump, you know, and they're done for the day and they can milk out, then you're dealing with fewer exhibitors. You're probably waiting for fewer people waiting for fewer animals, you know, to come to the classes and those kinds of things. So I definitely love doing bigger breeds first and then the smaller entry breeds later. 
So what about those marathon shows, those six ringers where you're, uh, you know, just going from, from breed to breed, or sometimes they're having judges move from ring to ring. What are your preferences on those? The judges move, not the goats, because it is easier to keep everyone close to the ring than having them move um, 50 feet. So I have a little bit of kind of a, I don't know, different perspective on this. So I've judged the marathon shows, obviously, and I do think in a marathon show, if you have four or six rings or something where there, it involves a lot of people a lot of animals and the moving of the animals is difficult and to kind of keep everybody where you need them to be. It makes sense for the judges to move, but the shows that I much more enjoy honestly judging are kind of the slower paced, not so many rings in a day, not such a hurry. The shows where there's a little bit more of the pageantry and a little bit less of the hurrying or what I actually prefer. And so I think this goes back a little bit and we were talking about this a little bit earlier before, um, before the recording today, but um, Laura and I both grew up in Indiana, kind of in the same time um, period and talking about when shows were one or two rings, you know, usually two rings at the most and we showed goats and when you weren't judging or showing your breed you were sitting in the stands watching and the stands were full of people and everyone watched all of the other breeds and everyone clapped for the exhibitors and the judge had an audience to give reasons to. And I feel like I learned so much more as an exhibitor, as a young person, as a, you know, up and coming goat person sitting there watching the other breeds and watching exhibitors exhibit and watching the professionals that came in like at the Hoosier classic, which Chautauqua farm would drive, you know, 12 hours to come and show at the Hoosier classic. And I would sit there and watch. I learned so much more sitting there watching and just taking it all in and learning. than I think I would going from ring to ring, showing the same goat over and over four or six times, honestly. So I think it a little bit depends on what your goal is, but I think there's some experiences that we've lost by having these marathon shows. I would agree with that. And I, you know, I loved those days when you would, because you watched the other breeds, you knew the names of, of goats in those other breeds, you know, like I remember Famey and I remember Claire and I remember different goats that you showed over the years along with, you know, uh, Sunny Shasta in this ring or such and such Nubian in that ring. And, you know, you, you, you had your favorites that you cheered for and it, it really, yeah, it was a different time. That was kind of fun. And I'll say something and I will, I might get some backlash on this, but that's okay. Um, you know, it's, it's, the game has changed. The goat show, the goat world has changed so much where it's, we have these mega shows now and really the, the slowdown of it all, whether it's good, bad, or something in between, has really gone astray for how fast can we finish a goat or how fast can we get a permanent champion status there to put her in best of breed or X, Y, Z there. 
instead of remembering why we really do this, why we go to Gocho's is to see our friends and, and, and visit and, and hang out. And, you know, I, you know, I'm not, I, I fall into that game too a lot. Well, and I think that's what it is really. I mean, it's become such a leg game and I, I'm a little sad about that. Honestly. Um, I, I'm glad that we do have a way to do champion challenge now this year. And I think that has kind of improved things for a lot of people being able to show their goats again. But I do think it's a little sad. I mean, it's exciting to finish the dough as a two-year-old first freshener in one weekend, you know, maybe she had a dry leg and she wins the other two at one show. And then what she's done, she's going to show in champion challenge for the rest of her life. I mean, to me, that's a little bit sad. Um, I personally, like everybody else, like to finish does. I like to have permanent champions, all of that. But it's also not the end-all, be-all to me. I've used bucks from does in my own herd and sold a lot of bucks to people from does that have never left my barn one time. And they sired some beautiful animals, and they don't need a CH in front of their name or GCH in front of their name, you know, to be worthy of contributing to the genetic pool and the breed. And so there's a lot of different ways to look at these things. Um, but I do think the, the hurry, hurry and the lots of rings and the leg games and, you know, all these different things have kind of taken something away from some of the learning element and just some of the other things that can be gleaned from a go show for sure. I'm not going to argue with that comment at all. No, I'm not either. I'm, I'm not. So, um, we're we're getting we, we've had a lot to talk about tonight. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of to wrap things up because I know Julie where you are. It's getting late too. Um, if you as a judge had a pet peeve that you needed to bring out, you know, or something that you just wish people wouldn't do, what would that be? Cameron, do you have one? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I was like, you you want to go first, Cameron? I do, I do, I do. Um, mine is the it's the hand behind the back thing. Like, I even call adults out. I don't know. I'm like, that's not natural. People like stop doing that. That does not work. It's more to dang distracting than that. So that's my first. That's my first thing as well. Number two, my my other pet peeve is that if you are not in the ring showing your goat in the previous class. You need to be ringside. That helps the show. That helps the show move along. There, you need to be checked in. You need to be ready to go um, because at the end of the day, that your promptness will help get through the day on those mega ring shows. And the, you won't have to spend time or people calling for you embarrassingly. And they're like, "Sally, do you have your goat named Chickadee ringside, or do you have her close?" You know, you don't want to be that person. That's my pet peeve. <laughs> a little bit along the lines of what you just said, but mine's kind of all forms of drama. So what you just said in terms of, you know, not being there, needing to be called repeatedly, all the, there's some exhibitors who just like to give you a lot of extraneous comments. Um, sometimes when exhibitors aren't happy with their placings, you know, you get the comments out of the breath or the looks or, you know, just some of those things, all the things that kind of go on that are drama and extraneous to just like, they're distracting. 
you know, where you can't just judge goats and have a professionally run ring with exhibitors who are doing what they're supposed to do. So I'm not a big fan of all the drama that happens sometimes, but I can deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) Julie, if our listeners wanted to find out more about your uh, beautiful, smaller herd now, where would they find you on um, the internet or on social media? So the only place I really am now is uh, I'm just Julie Masks on Facebook. And so I do not have a website at the present time. And someone tried to hack my uh, Sable Facebook page. So I had to take it down. And um, so I mostly just use my own personal um, Facebook for anything ADGA related director or EC related people are always welcome to contact me by messenger um, I do have an email address which is an AOL I'm in the directory um, so there's different ways they can contact me if they want to contact me about goats kind of one of the reasons that I not to get off on a side tangent but one of the reasons that I use my personal Facebook um, for kind of goat sales and heard things and all of that is I like to do business with people that I know because it's easier. And so I kind of uh, have intentionally limited my audience a little bit, but people do reach out and find me and get to know me and then do business. So that works out too. Very good. Thanks, Julie. As always, listeners, we appreciate your time this week. You can find us on the socials. You can find us on anywhere where you get your podcasts as well there. Lots of good stuff coming around the circuit as well. So uh, keep up the good work on that. We're getting a, a lot of forms and a lot of participation. So that's really awesome to see out in the countryside. Um, and I think that's all we got for this week. Thank you as always for joining us. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Goat Gab. Yeah.